that up to 70% of kids in foster care have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is a condition caused by exposure to alcohol in the womb. And it's underdiagnosed. It can lead to physical, behavioral, cognitive impairments. It's usually misdiagnosed like as things like ADHD or developmental de delay. So on this month's episode, we are talking with Laura Hernandez, who is an adoptive mom. Her children have been affected by fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and she just feels like we need to raise awareness of it. People that are working with kids in foster care or have been adopted need to understand fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and understand how we can meet the needs of these kids. So I'm gonna roll that intro and we'll dive right into the interview. I'm Rebecca Britt and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Laura, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're excited to have you and I know that you've got so much to tell us. So just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, your background, your story, why you chose to adopt. First of all, thank you for having me. That's what I was just telling you. It's such an honor to be here and to be able to um, just share our story and hopefully give light to kind of some of the things that just go on behind the scenes of an adoptive family. Um, we have wanted to adopt since we first got married and we first took a foster care class and kind of fell in love with the idea. And so we started down that road. We got Andrew placed with us when he was four days old. And at eight months, he went back to his mom. Mm. We had three biological children at the time. And then after he left, we had another one and moved up to Seattle. And then when we were up in Seattle, we had another one. Meanwhile, bio mom was back in Texas and she had two more as well. And then the three of them were taken away and put back into care. And so we moved back down to Texas to foster and adopt them. And it was kind of a whirlwind of, we went from four kids to eight kids within a six month period. And that was a lot. It was a whole lot. And it was, we're kind of living in survival mode, trying to figure out like how to how do we live life? Do we even have a life now? Or is this kind of like, are we just living for bedtime every night? And, you know, try to piecemeal other people's systems together and couldn't figure that out because nobody had a family just like ours. So finally had to figure it out on our own. It was kind of like laying all the pieces down on the table and then piecing together this puzzle of our family. And after we got systems in place that worked, we had peace in our homes and, um, you know, they're not all angel children. So they're not all floating around and being perfect, but there was peace and we had things, we had a rhythm and routine to our life and there was no chaos and it was amazing. So after that started mama systems, because I wanted to help other moms kind of do the same and just really figure out what's best for them. Cause so many moms just look around and see other things that they're like, should be doing that. And that's not necessarily what they should be doing. So 
I get to help moms figure out what they actually need in their homes and then how to help them thrive and help their family thrive. I love that. I love that so much because I'm more on like the business end of things and helping nonprofits, but I'm all about systems and processes and we need it. Like our personal lives reflect our work lives and we need that, like you said, that peace on every level. And we get that peace from relying on the system, right? I know. It's so amazing to me how that works. I just get so geeked out about systems because I, every time I'm like, this is amazing. And it surprises me every time how smoothly things go when we put a system in place and actually do the system. And you follow through. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like people are like, oh, like I don't have time for that. Right. But, but it's like, if you invest there, then you'll have the time because so much more time. It's like tenfold. It's amazing. So your family situation, holy smokes, it's a lot. So tell me, how did you choose to adopt or like, what was your reasoning? Why did you go to that first class? When I was a little kid, I think I was probably in fifth grade, I read an article. I mean, it was like in the newspaper on the table and I just picked it up and started reading it. And it was about the civil wars in Rwanda. And one of the articles I read was um, talking about how the moms were being crucified upside down and their babies were being cut out of them. And I know that's really graphic, but I remember like that just stuck in my head as a fifth grader. And um, I just thought if I could just take all of those babies and, and take care of them because I'm like, they're just laying on the ground somewhere where their moms are dying next to them. And so I think that that was like kind of the first seat of adoption of like, this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to take in kids that don't have a home. And wow, I have learned later on that that sounds a lot like the savior complex of I'm saving these children. And so trust me that I know that now, but that was my fifth grade brain that was just trying to figure this all out. And that's kind of where those seats were planted. So if you're listening thinking she has no idea, I figured it out. I can't save anybody. So it all started there. And then we, you know, there was an adoption panel uh, talking about all the different kinds of adoption. And I had really wanted to adopt from Africa. And my husband really wanted to adopt from China. And they're like, don't move forward until you're on the same page. And so we just kept waiting. And the foster care panel got up and we both looked at each other and go, oh, crap this is what we're supposed to do. We both knew in that moment that that's what we were signing up for. And I mean, in the nicest way possible, I don't know if anybody really wants to do foster care and like have their heart ripped out of them. And I think some people do and they're amazing, but my experience, I did not like that part of having to lose children that I bonded with and loved on so much, you know? Um, So I, I, in this whole process, I grew in my relationship with this bio mom I grew in compassion towards her, um, just seeing kind of the things that she'd grown up in and she was a product of the system. And oh my goodness, it makes sense that this is your life right now. Right. And I'm, I'm no different than you are. Like you just want to be a mom and you just want to have your kids at home. And like, we're, we're the same in that. I just had a much different upbringing and, um, I just looked a lot different than yours. And so Oh my goodness. That's why I'm able to have these kids in my home and why you're not like, Mm. that's it. And so I, I don't know where I was going with that. I don't think I've ever shared that before. There you go. Just a little nugget for you. I don't know. I'm supposed to share it. Um, I mean, so you, you got your, that first baby at four days old and I'm assuming this bio mom that you're talking about is that baby's bio mom. Yes. yes. Because that's the baby that ripped your heart out. Right. When, when he went back, but were you totally like you knew that this was a foster situation and, or were you thinking it was going to go towards adoption? Yeah. So, you know, they always say that it's not over till it's over. 
until the ink dries on the papers. It's not over. So I had that knowledge, but this was her third child to lose custody of. And the other two were already adopted out and she was homeless at the time. And so there were all these factors that everybody was kind of like, yeah, don't worry. Like you're going to be able to adopt him. No problem. Um, So even though we had that knowledge, we also were being told like, no, you'll probably be able to adopt him because he'll come into like rights will be terminated and there's no way she's going to get it together. Um, And she did enough to have him placed back in their home. And I think that just, they were in Dallas. I like not Dallas ISD, but Dallas, the County of Dallas. And um, I think that just the standards there are so low that, I mean, not throwing Dallas in the bus or anything, but I, the places that they lived that we went and visited, like I didn't want my kids to go in there. Like they were just dark and dingy and scary. And um, like, I, I didn't want my kids to step in there, much less live in there. And that's what it felt like. And it was so hard and so heartbreaking to, to watch that. And, you know, they went summers without AC. And so we'd help them get AC and like all these things that we were just like, they they can't do this. Like they're going to die if they're in this 120 degree heat. And I don't know, it was, it was just a very hard journey um, of advocating for them, for, ad- for advocating for him and then moving on to advocating for his brother and his sister as well. So that first baby didn't, that baby went back and didn't come back into your home. No, he did. So that oh, was Andrew. That, I'm okay. so sorry. I know this is confusing. No, so I he, mean, I, I just like to sort it out. So that I... so he left at eight months and then went back to his mom and she had two more kids. And so all those three children now, Andrew, Matthew and Hannah are, are adopted children. Oh, wow. Okay. So when he went back, there became circumstances with her other children and with him where your the kids were now going to be removed again. Yes. And, okay. So I get it. So you were probably talk about a roller coaster. Yeah. And it's so hard, like as a, as a foster mom to know when to like, I'm so we're people of faith and um, that just makes it really hard I think, because it's like, I'm trusting this divine God that knows everything and is in control. Um, And again, that's, that's what I believe. But at the same time, it's like, I'm supposed to advocate for them. And so it's like a trust and advocate, like, do I move? Do I stand still? Do I like, what do I do? Mm. And so it's, it was this tug and pull constantly. And so when we were up in Seattle and I was calling the caseworker from the moment that they were removed, it was about a year of calling the caseworker, trying to figure out how they are, if there's anything I can do to help, if there's any information they need, like what, you know, how can I be of service to you? And she never called me back. And I would call everyone in her office and leave messages with them to have her call me back. And she just wouldn't call me back. And so um, it was a home Sunday service that we went to. And it felt like the most random sermon ever. And the guy was talking about Jesus weeping for the orphan. And I was like, okay, God, I'm going to do this one more time. I'm going to call one more time. And then after that, I will give up and I will just trust you. And I called and she called me back. And she said, I've never had anybody call to check on foster kids before. I don't know what you're doing. Like, she's really skeptical of me. And I was like, I was just calling to check on them. Like, we love them and we're blah, blah. And so she was like, well, the foster mom is wanting to um, put Andrew in a home and Andrew's the one that we had fostered. And we're like, oh my gosh, well, what can we do? How can we get him? Like, we don't want him to go into a home. Like, That's awful. He's not even poor yet. Um, and so we started that whole process up in Seattle and then the ICPC process, which is the interstate compact agreement where you can't transfer kids without this whole process, which I know is there for good reason. 
However, Washington did not want to take on Texas liability of these three children. And so we ended up having to move back to Texas, redo foster care training again, and then had them placed in our home. I love that you talk about this, like so much of faith is like, you know, surrendering, but faith is also showing up. And then the discernment of like, is this my flesh that wants this? Is this your, is this what you want for me? And, and like, I'm ready to be the arms and, you know, the hands and feet, but I also don't want, I want to make sure that it's, it's your plan. (laughs) I totally get that. It's so hard to juggle that and to wait. I mean, waiting is so hard. I feel like I'm a two-year-old all the time because I feel like we have to wait for everything. And I just get so antsy and anxious and I'm just like, I want to make it happen now. So yeah, it's hard. It's a hard place to be. Yeah. Well, and if you know, it's your impatience, it's one thing, but it's like, maybe I'm impatient because I'm being pushed to move. (laughs) Where does my thoughts end and, and, you know, my callings begin? Gosh, it's such a battle. Oh my gosh. I so get it. What, what truth in that? Okay. So, um, so when you reached out to me initially, you talked about fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, which I, was like, oh, this is great because we actually haven't talked about this. We've brought it up, you know, a few experts have brought it up, but it's actually pretty prevalent with kids that go into foster care. Of course, there's substance use disorders and and all sorts of things um, that kids deal with or the reason for them going into care. So um, I just want to hear your perspective. First, can you tell the audience what is, uh, so I always knew it as fetal alcohol syndrome, but is it fetal alcohol syndrome disorder? It's fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Spectrum. I was like, syndrome and disorder don't make sense. Why is there an S and a D? Okay. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Yes. Got it. (laughs) And I'm by no means an expert. Like I don't have a medical degree or anything, but I've learned a lot. We have learned that our three have FASD, which is often shortened too, because it's a mouthful. Um, And just the ways that it has affected every aspect of their life has kind of blown me away. And also makes me very angry and um, like indignant is a good word to use here that more people don't know about it, that more people aren't educating about it, that we got like an ounce of training on this in foster care because it's true. Like it's estimated that 70%, according to the CDC, 70% of kids in foster care have some form of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It is common. It is very common. One in 20 kids, two and a half times more prevalent than autism. One in 20 kids have some form of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So this is a spectrum, just like autism is on a spectrum, right? So at one end you have FAS, so fetal alcohol syndrome. And that is the facial features that you often see that you'll take kids to the doctor and they're like, no, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have the facial features. And the doctor has no idea what they're talking about. So if you're a mama listening and that's the case, like run from that doctor, let's go find another one. And I would love to help you do that. That's only 8% of the kids. So you have this whole, they often call it like an umbrella, like a whole spectrum disorder. And there's an umbrella of, of different things. So then there's alcohol related neurodevelopmental delays. There's actual brain damage. And then there's like the, on the other end, it's just like very, it's very mild. You know, people are like a little bit of autism. Sometimes you'll hear people say that and you're like, huh, you either have autism or you don't, right? Same here. But these things will often be diagnosed as other things. So most kids who grow up in foster, and it's all, I I need to preface this by saying it's all like intertwined with the trauma, with the 
poor nutrition with all, I mean, and there's not enough research being done on it to really get all the nitty gritty of how much a mom drank, how that's affecting the kid when the mom drank, like there's just not enough research. So there needs to be more research. So we have this whole umbrella disorder. It is often misdiagnosed as autism, as ADHD, as bipolar, as a million different things, anxiety, depression, like there's all these comorbidities, right? And therefore our kids get misdiagnosed a lot. And Rad's on that list as well. We were talking about that just a minute before we hopped on here. And so it's so hard to kind of squeeze out all of those things and to treat all of those things. But a really important thing to keep in mind is if it is FASD, if a child does have some form of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, then you want to know that before you start treating these other things, mm-hmm. right? So our kids have FASD. They also have ADD. They also have in intellectual and developmental delays, which means they have a really low IQ. I mean, just their, their list kind of goes on and on too. But that ADD piece is important because you don't want to medicate the ADD with the stimulant if you have FASD, because often that will increase the aggression. Aggression is the word I'm mm-hmm. looking for. Okay. Um, so my son, Andrew, was getting like super aggressive and really violent. And we had to him call the police before because he was beating me up. And he's, I mean, he's 12 now, but he was younger then. And I finally read, hey, this is a medication you should avoid if this is the case. And so we took him off of that. And it was like, oh, my goodness, I wish I had a doctor that knew that. Mm. I wish somebody would have told me that. We had different instances along the way where like when he was being aggressive, um, we we were trying to contain him so that he was not um, throwing things at people. And he was like trying to pull the piano over and just all these really like almost like roid rages of just, it's like he turns into the Hulk or something. Right. And so my husband um, like took him outside and he ended up punching a hole through the, through the front door, like in the window of the front door, which, you know, scared all of us to death because most children don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it scared me in that, like, if a kid was there, they would have been really hurt, right? So I call one of our workers who's supposed to be, like, on our team, supposed to be for us, supposed to be helping us. And I said, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm, like, I'm scared in the way that, like, I don't think he's, like, not scared as in, like, he's holding a knife to my throat, but I'm scared in the way that, like, I feel like it's out of control. Something's got to give, right? Yeah. And she said, well, if that's the case, we need to call CPS and let them know. Like, if you feel like he's going to harm somebody, I was like, well, you can't handle it. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And you never want to argue with somebody when they say call CPS, because I'm like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like I have nothing to hide. And so I was like, okay, if you, she mentioned that at first, I was like, I really don't think that that's what they do. Like knowing very well, that's not what they do is give you resources. They take your children away. And so, but Fast forward, she says it again. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, if you think that's going to help, if you think whatever. So then the CPS worker comes over and it it was so traumatic for me um, just being the mom and like pouring my heart into these kids and having this lady come over who had no trauma training. She knew nothing about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She had been a caseworker for 20 years. She comes in and just berates me and it felt like I was being cut open and gutted. Like it was so hard. It was so hard because her whole tactic was fear, right? And like, I'm going to take away your kids. And I I said something like, well, if 
like we're not doing anything wrong. So if it's just him that you're concerned about the safety of everyone in the house, wouldn't you just take him away? And she said, no, we would pull up a bus and we put all your kids in there and we would take them all away. And it's like this, like, I know in court that would not hold up at all. Right. Like I know that she has no standing whatsoever to take my children away. But in that moment, she can load up all of my children in the car and they could be gone in foster care for two weeks until that first hearing. Like I'm, I'm not okay with that. Like yeah. none of that is okay. And so I, I think that if our, if our workers, if our people, if our people around us are supposed to be helping us as foster parents, as adoptive parents carry this load of these kids, like they should know about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They should know what that looks like on a daily basis. They should know the rages that come from that. They should know how it can rule your home and, and destroy a family. Like they should know that and they should be educating you and supporting you and not threatening to take your children away because of it, you know? Yeah. So what is the actual uh, impact that alcohol in the womb um, has on a kid and how is it different from other substances? I want, I want you to think about, do you ever brine your turkey at Thanksgiving? I know what brining a turkey is. Okay. Well, <laughs> the whole purpose is that all those juices and salts and all the things like hold it. I'm sorry, all the salt and all the seasonings kind of seep into the turkey over the 24 hours and like really bring out all the juices and the flavor, right? So it infects every single part of it. And so if you think about a baby in the uterus um, as he's cooking in there, like, and that alcohol comes in, that whole body is affected by it. So with our kids, this looks like a funny gait that they have, like with the, the way they walk, their intestines and um, just different GI issues that they have. Literally their brain has been damaged by this, right? So they have lower IQ. They're not able to focus. That frontal cortex is just not quite there. Like they can't put together A plus B equals C, or this is going to be the consequence of things, which is why a lot of our prisons, a lot of our juvenile justice system is all affected is mostly affected by kids with these disorders, right? So it is if, like, it's literally infecting our whole society and we're not talking about it. Mm. Like we have homeless people out on the streets that have been affected by it. And this is not a blanket across the board. If someone's homeless or if someone's in jail, they have FASD. But a lot of the studies show that it's a good majority, you know? And I think that we need to open our eyes and see that as a problem. Mm-hmm. And start talking about it, start educating people, start educating cops, start educating social workers and caseworkers and all the people and foster parents for crying out loud. They need to be educated on it because what's happening is we're getting this education of trauma-informed care, which is so great. Do not hear me say otherwise. I've learned so many great skills. And so often that can bring my kids down to a, a more normal level of being able to talk through things and de-escalate the situation. However, that's not it. Like I, I can informed, teach them all day long. But the message that we got over and over again was like, if you do this and after about two years, they're going to feel safe and they're going to feel, um, they're going to start to catch up because they feel safe. Right. So developmentally, they'll probably be behind, you know, you'll probably see all these deficiencies in school and da, da, da. But after two years, you'll start to see that this is actually working and you'll get these results. And I don't think anybody ever said it quite that equation. Like, but that's just kind of the message that's written in books that's given to us all the time. Um, and that's just not true. Our, our kids actually escalated in behavior after several years, right? 
and their IQs did not go up. Developmentally, they haven't like skyrocketed. And all those things are okay, but wouldn't that have been nice to know that before? Like, this could be a possibility. This is what you should be looking out for, you know? And like judging your success by progress, that's not going to happen or, you know, may not happen. And it's, and it's, and all of the issues in the brain aren't just caused by trauma. There's genetics, there's um, substance use disorder, there's fetal alcohol syndrome. There's just, yeah, the genetic issues with low IQs and, so how is it though different? Cause like, I just can't, yes. I can't not think about how many kids are going into care right now because of the opiate epidemic. So do you know, um, like, cause I'm, I like, if it's 70% of kids in foster care are somewhere on the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or, or on the spectrum, then I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't close to a hundred that some type of substance use, um, was yeah, there. So, so is there a difference? Well, what I've learned um, is that most likely if a mom is using heroin or any other substance, right, she is also probably going to be drinking along with it. Mm-hmm. Like those things don't normally exist just all by themselves. There's normally other things going along with it. So we can kind of think about it that way of if there's, if they're on meth, they've probably been drinking too. And I wanted to read you this quote by Dr. Kenneth Jones. He's actually the doctor that diagnosed our kiddos over in California, we had to go from Dallas to California to get a diagnosis because there's not a clinic in Texas. There's nothing in Texas. You look up doctors and the one doctor that comes up in the Dallas area doesn't actually take kids who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, so we went to California and he's an expert witness in the one of the school, the school shooting down in Florida. He was the expert witness. And this is the quote that he said. He said, you can take all of the illicit drugs you can think of, heroin, marijuana, methamphetamine." Cocaine. I'm sorry. I said methylphenidate because we take ADD meds in our house and that's what that is. Methamphetamine. Yeah. There you go. So sorry. Uh, Cocaine and wrap them all up in a single bag and they don't hold a candle to alcohol for its effect on a developing baby. And you would think the opposite, right? You would think the opposite. You would think like, this isn't just alcohol, it's meth. Yeah, but no. And and we're not talking about it. Like we talk, uh, you hear a lot about crack babies, but awesome. And um, that's not awesome. Like hear my sarcasm in that, please. Um, but again, we're just not talking about the alcohol use and it's big. It is big. It's big. And the effects of it are long lasting, like forever and ever. Like these kids will be in our home. Lord willing, we can get some of them off doing something, but it's not looking like they're going to be going off to college or living on their own anytime, anytime in the near future, you know? And so we just need to be having these conversations. Well, is it fair to say that it might start with having conversations about alcohol in general? Like we're a society that like jokes about needing alcohol to survive everything, parenthood, being an adult, working, you know, like we celebrate alcohol use and we normalize what is what is considered to be binge drinking you know having a couple beers every single night is like supposedly a problem but like a lot of americans do it um i just say americans because i don't know about other countries but i know that our country is like alcohol is really really glorified um so we're not talking about that either 
you know? And so I feel like just in general, I mean, and it's gotten way more lax about you can drink during breastfeeding. Um, you can definitely have a glass of wine while you're pregnant. Um, you know, a glass of wine here or there while you're pregnant, like things have gotten more lax, if anything, not more like this is a really harmful thing. My husband and I drink, um, and we're not drinking three beers every night, but we have the occasional glass of wine. We'll have the occasional margarita. Right. So I'm not, we need to ban all alcohol forever and ever, but I, the, the alcohol piece of it affecting another person, it's like drunk driving, right? Like, no, you're changing someone's life forever. And that's not okay mm-hmm. because you're affecting someone else. Um, and I'm sure there needs to be a huge society push on how we view alcohol and how we are dependent on it as a society. Um, but my, my heart and my concern is just how it affects these babies mm-hmm. and how they have no choice. So it's not like Andrew's making the decision to drink right now and he's destroying his life because he's drinking. It's no, that was your mom. And she loves you with all her heart, but she doesn't know that she's not supposed to drink during pregnancy. She doesn't have that education. She doesn't know how that's going to affect you. And it's affecting you now and it's going to affect you forever, you know? Yeah. So with your kids or with kids that are, that have experienced this, um, what, like, how should the school show up? How, like, like in, give me some like tangible responses that may be different from trauma informed responses that are really helpful for kids on the spectrum. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. Um, I don't have all the answers in the education department, but I know from a parental standpoint, coming together and working with our team of I, like our IEP team of SPED leader and their specific teachers it has been life-changing having them on my team. Our first year of having them in public, I mean, I guess they've always been in public school, but it was our first kind of experience with public school. And Hannah was in elementary school and she was taking food off of other people's plates and eating off the floor. And I'm like, she's in the SPED department. So we're not, she's not to be compared to other kindergartners, right? In my opinion. Um, but somebody called CPS because they're like, well, clearly she's not eating at home, even though she came with a lunch every day. Right. So instead of their response being like, Hey, how can I come alongside you? Finding out a little bit more of the story instead of, so instead of like making up stories about like, Oh, clearly she's not eating and having, I know is I feel like being informed about this culture, this society, this breaking down of things and the lower depths of society, like in CPS world, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but please forgive any PC-ness that I'm not obeying right now. Um, so whatever that that is, people make up stories about that, right? Like, so obviously she's not being fed because she's eating off the floor. Like that has to be it. Obviously her parents aren't taking care of her. So those stories that that person's making up and then taking action on those stories are so harmful to us as a family. It's so traumatic to have CPS workers come in and tell you you're not doing a good job when you've seen where they've come from and you know how far they've come and you know that she just doesn't have those boundaries. She doesn't have that knowledge that, hey, we don't take things off people's plates because she doesn't have those boundaries and they haven't been taught to her. So instead of working together and saying like, hey, what can we do here? This is a problem. We see this. We see this happening. What can we do together to change this? It then instead of that beautiful picture, it comes in as an attack on our family, you know? And so I think that 
I know that there are a ton of tactics out there that we could talk about with FASD and setting that up. But I think the number one thing is just partnering with the parents and coming alongside them because it's so hard in the home all the time. And so what you're seeing at school is probably what the parents are experiencing on a daily basis. And probably the parents are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Like they're doing the right things and they're not getting the results either. And how frustrating and how tiring that must be for them. And how can you come along and support them and encourage them and, and push them towards greatness? And how can we help this kid really survive and thrive? You know? Yeah, I totally get it. I mean, and it backs up well, the um, building objectivity um, and open-mindedness episode that I had last month, because it's the same thing. It's like, look at the facts. The facts are there's a child that's taking food off another child's plate. That's all you have. That's the fact. So, you know, to whatever extent you want to ask about that, explore that, uh, support that, um, support that parent, then we can show up in that way. But us adding anything to it, good or bad, isn't what we should respond from. Like you respond from the facts. So I think that that's really helpful, not only for the service providers that um, are in the stable moments model, but for the the mentors too, because they might see some really weird behaviors when they're hanging out with a kid one-on-one and there can be a whole lot of assumptions made. And we assume quickly, like we assume so naturally that it's the current parenting (laughs) that is the, the issue. Even if we like somebody told us recently that a kid, you know, came into this placement within three months, for some reason, we like our brains go right to like the current parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's what they just naturally do. So it's really like an effort on our part to not make these assumptions. And, and I will do it. I have all this background. I literally like have worked with foster adoptive parents for so long and I will still make um, like I'll go to the playground and see a little girl with her um, dad and say something like, wow, you have the same color eyes as your dad or something. And I'm like making huge assumptions about like their family makeup or that is even her dad or, you know what I mean? And even that could take a kid off guard if that isn't her dad and her dad, her dad died last year. And this is her uncle. And like, you've opened up this huge can of worms because you're like trying to add, (laughs) you're trying to connect through your own lens. You know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. And there's two things I would love to add here. One, even I, so something common with kids who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um, is something called confabulation. And I don't know if you've talked about this or if people Mm -hmm. know about this, but it's, if you can kind of think of the FASD brain as like Swiss cheese and there's a ton of holes in it, right? There's, so they're just missing things. So they may say something one day or have a skill down one day, but then the next be like, I don't know. You know, you did this yesterday and they have no idea. Mm -hmm. And it's like that all the synapses and all the things in the brain that I don't really understand aren't connecting and they're not doing what they did yesterday. And that feels confusing. Right. And so a lot of times the kids are trying to piece together these things. I think it's frustrating for them too, that they don't know the answer sometimes. And so um, an example of this is my daughter was really angry at school and she ripped her shirt in response to that anger. And she went to her next class and told the next teacher that the past teacher did it, Mm -hmm. that the past teacher got really angry at her and ripped her shirt. And so things like this come out all the time where it's like, what? Like 
she tells a great story about her mom being eaten by coyotes in her room, you know, and people are like, did that really happen? Because she's so convincing because she's convinced herself that that's what happened. She's made up the story in her mind and she's, she's believing it. And so other people believe it too. And so that's just something to always kind of keep in the back of your mind of just because they say something and just because they sound convincing, like, I'm not saying disregard everything that they say. Yes. Listen to them, but investigate. And ask questions and be curious about it. And don't just assume that what they're saying is true. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is mentors and, and foster parents or adoptive parents listening. One thing that I've done to just kind of advocate for my kids, I think has been really, really helpful is putting together a, a little book about their story, just a short, like, Hey, this is their history. This is where they came from. These are some of the things that we see now that might be alarming to you. And this is how we handle them. And just getting everybody on the same page has been really, really amazing for me to be able to have those conversations openly with them. So we have that little cover letter that just kind of gives a brief history of their background, where they've come from, what you may see, how we deal with it. And then I add in some information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders because doctors don't know about it. I mean, I'm educating people all the time on really what's going on with their brains because no one knows about it. And it's infuriating. I don't feel like that should be my job. I feel like the professionals should know what they're doing but they don't. So here we are. And if I want to make a change, if I want to have a different outcome for my kiddos, then I need to be the voice for them and let people know what's going on with them. That's amazing. I love that you kind of have this, like this user manual, right. <laughs> that you have created. Yeah. How do your kids feel about, do, like, do, are they aware of this? Like um, I'm calling it a user manual. I shouldn't, but it's like, that's what I'm thinking of. Are they aware of this? And like when you're meeting, like how do they respond to the, because um, in our program we have plans of care, but I often like try to have the mentors, you know, meet with the kids and the kids aren't even aware of their plans of care because I really want this to just be like a time where they're not getting fixed, but they are just spending a healthy time with an adult that is informed. That's why there's the plan of care. So tell me a, a little bit about that, like so that like, so, is the kid like understanding that like, okay, this is, these are the things you would see. And I have fetal alcohol syndrome, you know, I wish, I wish that we had that big understanding. We're not there yet. Um, they really struggle with, I mean, even the adoption piece of it, like who I didn't, you're not my mom, but you are my mom. And then we call, we'll say your bio mom, the one that, that birthed you and took care of you for a while, you know? And I don't think that they really get that still, we're still not there yet. And so when I talk about their diagnosis, I don't even use the words and I don't like, I just haven't felt like they're able to carry that weight yet of yeah. all of that or understand that, or even have a conversation about it. And so we'll talk about, Hey, you know, sometimes it's hard for you to make the right choice. And so I want to tell them how, you know, how your brain works best so they can understand, so they can help you make the right choices in class. Oh, I love that. You know, so it's just kind of, making it super simple for them. They know what they struggle with. They know like Andrew knows he has a hard time with his temper. He knows he has a hard time telling the truth. He knows he has a hard time with stealing things and taking things that aren't his. And so having those conversations and just saying like, I, I just want her to know so she can help you succeed. Mm. Like we're building this team around you because for the rest of his life, he's going to need a team of people around him. You know? Yeah. I love that. Beautiful. Okay. So I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, and I know that your family has, uh, grown a lot very quickly and, you know, you've talked about mama systems and is that what it's called? Yes. Mama systems. Yes. 
Um, and so I just, I want to know how, like where you were when you realized like, okay, I need systems and how now you manage, manage everything you've got going on. So I, I remember being backed up against the wall and thinking, because it felt like these three children had come into our home. And while I wanted them and fought for them and advocated for them, it was like, who are you? It felt like I was babysitting that, and they just weren't ever leaving, you know? And so it's like, well, they're my kids now. I need to have, like, I need to feel like we're a family, but we don't feel like a family. It felt more like a daycare. Um, like, yeah, wow. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and just thinking if I can just make it to bedtime, if I can just get them in their cribs, like that was my goal for the day because we had five kids, four and under, all in diapers, all in cribs. And I just knew that if they were there, they would be safe. And if it had the added pressure of all these eyes on us, we were considered a group home for a number of kids. We had to have extra help in the home. So we had to hire workers to come in. So the ratios would be correct. Like there were all these like specific things, right? And it felt like all these eyes were on us. Um, I mean, just rules that you're like, most families don't have these rules. And mm. we were to obey all these rules that were so felt so ridiculous. Like I understand the meaning behind them, but they felt ridiculous. And so it just felt like any wrong move, they could pull up and take all my kids away. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that if there's any foster parents listening, that they can probably resonate with that, that it just feels very at any moment, somebody could come take all my children away. Um, I hate that fear and I hate that for other people. And I hate that CPS is like a fear tactic. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not what we're solving today. You're asking about systems. So Yes. So I just, there were all these things I wanted to be doing with my kids and things I wanted to be teaching them and be intentional with. And all of those kind of went by the wayside when we went from four to eight kids and moved across the country and we're trying to figure all this out. And so sitting down and figuring out those things that I wanted to be intentional with and creating those rhythms and routines in our day that, that brought peace to me and to our kids as well, because our special buddies absolutely thrive when they know what's expected of them. Mm -hmm. Right. When those intentions are set, when those expectations are set, like they do really well. And when they don't, like when those aren't set, they don't do really well. And it's more chaotic. And you would think, oh, it's a more relaxed day. We won't do any of that. And yet that's when everybody kind of escalates and it goes more not so. So just kind of seeing the fruit of that and being like, okay, I've, I've really got to do this because this is how we're going to be okay as a family. And starting to put those in place was so huge for me. Because I, and a big piece of this, just to say out loud, I'm, I'm not like superwoman. I don't have it all together. My kids aren't angels singing around doing all their chores every time I ask them to. Like, that's not reality. I'm aware of that. We have a lot of help in our home. And one of those ways we get help is through the state, through this FASD diagnosis that people are so um, leery about getting and like getting it for their children and then like doctors and stuff, giving it to people, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has this really leeriness about this disorder, but this disorder in Texas gives you support in your home. And so we have workers that come and help us with these kids and help us like survive our day. And it has been life changing. So we have all of these pieces of our rhythms and our routines and set expectations. We have help in the home and just seeing how all of this beauty works. Like I want to share this with other people. I want other mamas out there who have kids with FASD. I want them to know about these things. I want them to know about the resources. I want them to know about the respite. I want them to know about all these things so that they can have a freer life. Like it sometimes just feels like your kids with FASD rule your home 
and we're all walking on eggshells and we can't go anywhere because I don't know how that kid's going to respond. If we go to the pool right now, like, I don't know if our time is going to be ruined the moment we walk in and we're gonna have to walk right back out. Right. So I feel like a lot of times it just feels like you're being held hostage by this. And I don't want that for moms. I want them to be able to thrive and I want them to be able to enjoy their kids. I want them to be able to enjoy their family and love their their adopted kiddos as best as they can, or their foster kiddos as best as they can, but not put their worth in that. Because mm-hmm. even if they're doing the best job on the whole planet, the behavior of these children may look completely different than that. And everyone in the world, everyone in this like community of CPS workers, caseworkers, whatever, will put their behavior on you. But that's not the case. Like you have such little control over that if they have brain damage. And so Oh my goodness. I just want mamas to be free from that and for them to be able to walk in freedom and to be able to love their children well and to love themselves well by taking care of themselves. So. And it sounds like systems and getting just some stability through systems allows you to have the space to like even make some of those, like, you know, their behaviors isn't a reflection of my parenting and some of those connections. Yeah. And the beauty of it all is I, I realized again, full well that I don't have any control over how they act and how, like, if we're going to be punching holes in the wall tonight, I have no idea. But what I do know is I have a plan for dinner. We have a safety plan in place so that if if someone does go off their rocker and starts creating chaos and has a meltdown or whatever, we have a safety plan for everybody else. We all know what to do. I can go deal with that kid and be present there because other things are taken care of because those all have systems for them. Does that make sense? So even it's not that everything's like magical and perfect. It's, Hey, we're going to have stuff taken care of so that we can show up to be our best selves when this kid is melting down. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. Okay. Well, could you leave our audience with a few of, or one or two of your uh, favorite life hacks for busy, busy parents, and then let people know where they can find you? Yes. I think that a morning routine is like the best way to start a day. And so figuring out what that looks like for you, because if I share my morning routine with you, it's going to look completely different, right? The times we wake up, the times like what gives you life, all of those things are going to look completely different. And so really just figuring out what that looks like for you will set your day up for success. And then I think a huge piece of that morning routine is having your evening routine feed into that. Mm -hmm. So what do you need to have done the night before? So for me, it's like prepping coffee. It's kids cleaning up spaces so that I'm not waking, waking up to stepping on Legos on the floor. Um, it's having kids do everything the night before so that we're not scrounging around trying to make lunches and find shoes and socks and all the things, right? That leads to a more peaceful morning, which leads to a more peaceful day. So afternoon routine, evening routine. And then I think just having another anchor in your day is something your kids can rely on. So one of the things that we do in our house is at dinner time we do highs and lows. And this is very, very basic. It doesn't have to be anything elaborate or some magical devotional or anything just very basic of my kids are going to be able to count on this and we're all going to listen to them they're going to be heard and we're going to practice listening to our siblings so everybody goes around and does their highs and lows from the day and then they talk about how they feel like how how did those things make them feel and we're not allowed to use the words good or bad because those are kind of our go-to feeling emotions and so i want them to dig deeper and i want them to be able to voice how they feel like it made you feel frustrated yeah i can imagine that that was that was a frustrating thing we're all listening, that person's being heard and their voice matters. And so just that intentionality around setting something that's so small in your day 
but that your kids can expect and that they can count on and that you can count on to know that you're being intentional with your people. So you don't feel like you're dropping the ball. All of those things, all of that intention around it just makes this simple system so powerful in our home. I love that. I love highs and lows. Is there situations where, so each kid says a high and a low for the day? Mm-hmm. Are there situations where they like, they don't have any lows? There are some, and I'm okay with that. Okay. Yeah, I know. I was like thinking I of like my- the highs, uh... I'm like, there's something we can be thankful for. There's something good that happened today. So let's dig a little deeper for that. But um, yeah, it's great. So the my high today was that I went on a walk and it's beautiful weather outside. And that made me feel joyful and full of life. And then my low today was that I had to wake up so early and about that, I feel really tired and like, I would want to be sleeping more. So just very simple. Yeah. But you kind of know about my morning now and how it went. Yeah. Well, and it's nice that, um, you're leading by example and it's actually making you pause. Like how many adults pause and talk about their highs and lows and they just, you know, we just, uh, steamroll forward. Yeah. So it's kind of nice because it builds in time to be like, well, if I'm going to make them do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lead by example, but oh, like this is the first time I've checked in with myself today on how I'm feeling or what my low was or what my high was. So I love that. Awesome. All right. Let us know where we can find you. Mamasystems.net. Okay. Mamasystems.net. Laura Hernandez, right? Yes. And um, I will link your um, website in the show notes so that everyone can, you know, if you are sitting at home and you are a foster or adoptive parent or, hey, if you're anybody um, and you're like, I need some systems in my life, then go check out Mama Systems. Um, But thank you so much, Laura, for not just coming on, but telling us your story, being really vulnerable, you know, and and being apparent that regardless of like the scrutiny and the non-support you've gotten, you've, you've stuck in it. Like, it sounds so much like, thank goodness you have the support that you've had and you've navigated a lot of these systems to advocate for your own support. But when it's not there, it's like, am I the only person in this world that cares about these kids? And that might actually, the answer might be yes. And that's kind of why we exist is it's not okay to have one parent who wasn't the biological parent, but any parent shouldn't feel alone in raising children because children are the responsibility of the community. I I firmly believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Yes. yes. For any listeners out there that, well, I guess any and all who are curious more about FASD, I have an Instagram account called FASD Mama and we're putting up facts and sharing stories and stuff that just kind of our life on display to educate and, and love other families. So nice. I will add that to the show notes as well. Yes. Go follow on Instagram. All right, Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You as well. All right. Bye-bye.